Hey everybody, welcome to Bringing Meditation to Life, a podcast in which we immerse ourselves in the intersection of meditation and everyday life, in which we look at the ways meditation illuminates and deepens our experience of daily living and the ways life itself does the same for our practice. I'm your host, Neil McKinley. So welcome, everybody. Welcome to the other voices aspect of this Bringing Meditation to Life podcast. This is an opportunity for us to learn a little bit more about what practice looks like, what life looks like for other meditators that I know. And today, it's our good fortune to have Jules Fay with us. It's our good fortune to be able to sit back and listen and enjoy as Jules shares a little of her experience with us. So welcome, Jules, and thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Neil, for inviting me. Well, my pleasure. And uh, why don't we just dive right in? Can you just tell us a little bit about your life, a little bit about yourself? A little bit about my life. Um, I think I'll just say I, I live alone. I'm in a very tiny house, as it's called these days. I live in a tiny house. Um, and, you know, my week is kind of split between artwork, meaning book-related, bookbinding and printing and that kind of world, book arts, and hospice volunteer and kind of death doula. Uh, services to the community. Well, those are the big things that I spend my days doing. Mm-hmm. Those, are the, the, those kind of shape my life. Sounds like a rich and deep way to spend your days in both threads. It is a very rich and deep way. Yeah. I, I feel very, very lucky that mm. I landed here. I feel like I landed here. You landed here. Yes. I, I didn't. I didn't plan this, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I landed here. No. Landing. I think landing here is a uh, a very common experience for many of us. You know, not just mm-hmm. with our general life direction, but also you know more specifically with things like meditation, which is what we're going to be talking about here. And um, a lot of us seem to feel like we simply landed here in terms of our relationship with meditation. I'm wondering if you could flesh out that landing for, for us in your case. (laughs) Yeah, that's a rich, that's another rich (laughs) journey. (laughs) You know, I've been, I've, I think I would say it was 19, I think it was around 1999 when I really seriously stumbled into the Buddhist world. And it was um, Pema Chodron who opened the door for me, you know? And I never have actually sat with her, but through her tapes in those days, tapes <laughs> and books. 
she kind of opened the door and then I got involved with local Mount Vernon area and Bellingham groups. I'm in the Pacific Northwest. And then that, you know, that just opened into other things. And eventually I founded a, a llama that that I had a very close relationship with for maybe three or four or five years in the Tibetan tradition. And that, that was incredibly rich. Come here. <laughs> She's barking. <laughs> and, um, and then that faded away. He stopped coming to our local area and we, you know, that sort of, ended and after that there's been a series of meeting remarkable teachers <laughs> and working cl closely with them for short periods usually three two to three to four years and then circumstances shift evaporate mm -hmm. or somebody leaves the country or so on the one hand there's a series of important teachers and not all of them but Buddhist. I've I'm deeply influenced by Hindu Vedanta. I worked with a Swami for a while, very closely, and was contemplative Christian. I had a teacher in that tradition. I had a rabbi I was very close with. I had a Sufi teacher I was very close with. So I've, you know, I I feel really gifted in that these remarkable people have come into my life, have really opened me up. And then something doesn't keep me on that particular path in that particular lineage. So there's this broad mm. interdisciplinary, interspiritual influences, mm. streams coming into my river. <laughs> the other thing I was about to say is that some, about halfway through my whole life, <laughs> my my beloved husband died, and that moment the moment of his death and all of the time afterwards has really shaped both my personal life and my spiritual life grief and death have become everyday companions and mm -hmm. teachers for me in a big big way and in a very rich way can so, you maybe flesh that out for us a little bit um Jules you know if you're willing to just articulate, you know, how have death and grief become companions for you? And then how, assuming they're they're separate, which they may not be, how have death and grief become teachers for you? What's that influence? You know, after Chris died, well, actually before Chris died, I, I had lost a very close friend. She was only, I think she had just turned 40 and I was about 30 quite a few years ago and the circumstances of her death were we we don't really know why she died the coroner was was involved because that's the law she was found in her room and they could they could rule out a bunch of stuff but they couldn't narrow what was the cause so it wasn't disease it wasn't trauma to the body it wasn't poison it wasn't like all the usual suspects. It wasn't any of those. And when I talked to the coroner, she said, it's not that uncommon that we don't know. So 
what I what my experience was when Jane died was that I so had wanted to like it was so incomprehensible that people just stop. That was so profoundly incomprehensible that from that moment on I I had this profound longing to be with my friends and loved ones when they die. I want to be there. I actively want to be there. I want to accompany them. And so I have been seeking training in how to be and do a death midwife kind of companion with people. And that longing, I don't, I can't say what that is, but it has the, how do I say this? Um, I've just learned so much about the human condition in being with people who are grieving and being with my own grief. When Chris died, like the whole world of widows and widowers suddenly opened up to me. I'm suddenly a member. And I had never even considered that. <laughs> the way we do go along thinking it's not going to happen to us. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly I have this profound connection with all these people who have lost their spouse. And I understand their life in a way that I didn't before. Mm -hmm. And I recognize grief when before I didn't. Like when someone's grieving, I see it now and I mm -hmm. understand what it is, even when they themselves don't always know that it's grief. Like I, mm -hmm. it's almost like suddenly I can, it's a, it's another color that I wasn't able to see before or something. It's just taught me so much about how, how fragile we are and how incredibly resilient isn't even the word more like how amazing that we survive at all. <laughs> yeah. And a real sense of connection in that recognition. It sounds like too, a profound sense of interconnectedness with other huge sense of interconnectedness. And, you know, I would say I had been practicing the, the Tibetan Tonglin practice before and it was very moving and meaningful. And after Chris died, it felt like the whole practice opened up in this new way, like breathing in the, the sorrow, the grief, the suffering of another person, um, and breathing out beauty and grace and well-wishing. Is I, I felt like whether we're, conscious of it or not we're doing that all the time like i don't know how to say this but there's this breathing in and breathing out of one another that we're doing all the time and we may most 99 percent of the time not even be aware that we're doing mm -hmm, it but mm -hmm. it is an interconnectedness we are co-sharing all of the suffering and all of the the gorgeousness all the time but we're not always ex it's not always accessible that we know that. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love your, your use of the word co-sharing in discussing that because one of the turning points for me in my relationship with that practice, Tonglen, of breathing in the suffering and breathing out, you know, grace and wonder and relief and 
relaxation and so on and so forth. One of the turning points for me was a recognition at a certain um, juncture that that practice is not as unidimensional as I think it is, meaning it's not me doing it for others, that right. there's much more going on, that others are doing it for me, with me, alongside yeah. me. Yes. Co -do, that the practice is not a, it's a co-practice, to use your co-sharing. It is, and it's not even doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> even doing is the wrong word. It isn't yeah. a doing. We aren't actually, I mean, many teachers have said, we're not actually taking on the person's illness and then actively sending out some medicine. Mm -hmm. There's something else going on. We are opening it. It feels more like I'm, I opened up like your beautiful word perforate, perforate. Mm -hmm. It's like even more than perforate. It just opened up and the lifeness, the wholeness, all the beauty and all the sorrows and all of the everything comes in and flows out and comes in and flows out all the time continuously. And so Tonglin is more about kind of um, practicing bringing to awareness that this is what is happening anyway for me. Which sometimes I feel like that's what meditation is altogether, right? Meditation practice, we're given these techniques that are really about piggybacking upon what's going on anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and isn't it remarkable that all these different spiritual traditions have developed sort of like a technology of practices, and they're all unique to each other, mm -hmm. and then they argue about it with each other and say, no, you're, you're wrong, and we're right, but that that's what human beings have done. Mm -hmm. Somebody recognized there's this reality. How can I teach it? How can I share it? How Isn't that we, amazing? It is amazing. And it's I love how earthy it is, this notion that what we're talking about as spirituality is really connecting with what's actually already going on, that it's not um, highfalutin and separate. Exactly. Exactly. It's very every day. It's very every minute. It's very every minute. It's very every minute. I mean, I think about, you know, the example of Tonglen practice just how commonplace that experience of connecting with the suffering actually is for us. I think a lot of us, that's why we find, find the news overwhelming. I think yes. a lot of times it's like, oh, it's bad news. I don't want to relate to it. And I think, which I understand. And But underneath there, there's a connective quality that happens. On yeah. reading the newspaper or listening to the newscast or seeing someone struggling on the side of the street when you're going to get milk. Yeah. Yes. I I I'd certainly feel that way. And yeah. that capacity to connect is part of what meditation helps open. Because I would say, you know, in my 20s, that capacity was not so great. It was really not so great. And now. Well, at Chris's death, it kind of got blasted open, ready or not. Yeah. And that yeah. and that happens. So ready or not, sometimes, boom. And now you're going to feel. <laughs> I mean, isn't it interesting how um, grief, loss, 
is often the kind of conduit for that opening. It's like, yeah, you know, no one likes, no one that I know likes the wounds that we accumulate in the course of our lives. And yet it seems like those wounds are precisely the conduits through which we connect with the world. Yeah. It it often is true. And they, those are the soft places. Like mm-hmm. y- you can develop kinds of hard places to protect the wounds, but those are the the tender places. You know, again, I, my life just completely turned around when Chris died, and the 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 wound, the the heartbrokenness of it was so overwhelming. None of the other strategies worked anymore. Like I didn't have, I didn't, all of my, what do you call it? Um, armor mm-hmm. and, and, and fighting mechanisms, all of that stuff blown out of the water. So at the time I didn't appreciate that no. <laughs> I, to say the least, but now I'm very grateful. It really mm-hmm. humanized me. It really made me much more human and humane. Who have lived through that? What a beautiful, potent way to 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 put it. We talked about, you know, opening up and perforating. And I, I in my experience, one of the other uh, ways of describing the effect of grief, of loss, of heartache is disarming, disarmoring yes. us, disarmoring. It's yeah. All as you said, all the old ways they just don't, they can't do it anymore. Right. Which leaves us open, vulnerable, sensitive, feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I I just want to say, Neil, that um, in hospice training and just in, in in my life, I have slowly begun to see that there's there's almost always some kind of wonder or beauty in the wound like mm-hmm. the the grace and the wound aren't two different things and i also have the experience at this point of understanding when someone's inside especially the fresh the fresh wound the new loss or the the profound grief of recent death or tragedy it is not helpful for somebody to come along and say well there's a gift in this mm-hmm. that is just not helpful and and that's important to remember later on they they might be able to come to see that on their own and i did but in the mm-hmm. beginning no that was not helpful but in now the beginning, i can grief see is it. grief it is and it yeah. needs to, it needs its own time and and there's something sacred about the time it takes to to move and to mm-hmm. reveal its its wisdoms. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about that? What that process has been like for you? That revelatory um, process through which grief and loss has revealed its gifts. You know when. Um, 
I guess it was like a two years after Chris died, I was in a, a call a university program trying to get my BA in a self-designed course, a self-designed degree, which I was calling something like um, contemplative, contemplative practices in spirituality and healing or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember the title I gave my degree. <laughs> but part of it was you had to have a final project. And I did a project that I called the Yoga of Sorrow. And that was facilitating a circle with a, uh, six other people that were also grieving. And so we were exploring grief together. And that phrase, the Yoga of Sorrow, is the, the name of the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, or the second chapter, mm-hmm. where Arjuna, the great warrior, is about to enter this battlefield and he's been trained for this. That's he's a warrior and he's gonna protect his people. And he asks the charioteer, which happens to be God, <laughs> Krishna, <clears throat> to roll out and and uh, let him see who his foes are so he can be prepared. And when he does, he sees that these are all people that he loves. These are his spiritual teachers, these are his fathers and his uncles and his brothers, and he he can't do it. He he says, he sits down and puts down his sword and says, I can't do this. This isn't right. I cannot be asked to have the blood of my beloveds on my hands. And the whole rest of the Gita is God discussing our duty and our purpose and the reality and the ultimate reality and all this other stuff. But I got stuck there after Chris died. I'm like, mm-mm. Yoga of sorrow is what life is about. I am putting down everything. I don't want to go into the battlefield of life. I just want to stop right here. Mm. And I would rather call it quits than be asked to continue to live. This is too hard. And I feel like the last, Chris has been dead for 16 years. I feel like the last 16 years has been God or the all in all or wisdom itself or consciousness there's no good word for whatever it is that's running this whole thing (laughs) has been saying julesy it's not time to quit Mm -hmm. you have to keep going and you have to find you have to find beauty and meaning and and let your let yourself be touched and Something about letting my heart just break completely wide open. Let me keep going. And sometimes it's, you know, especially in the early days, it was one, it wasn't one day at a time. It was one hour at a time Mm -hmm. to just decide, okay, I'm going to keep breathing and eat something. And that will have been an accomplishment for today, Mm. you know? Yeah. And did meditation play a role in this? Does it play a role in this? Yes. And I would say my the major practice I've done for the last uh, close to 20 years now um, was Sultram Alioni's feeding the demons practice. Although the curious thing is that I'd already been doing a practice similar to that before I ever heard of her practice mm-hmm. that had just come to me in 
kind of in a dream where whatever, basically for me, it's whatever emotion or sensation is coming up that I'm having trouble with, fear or rage or profound, overwhelming grief or whatever it is, whatever it is that's coming up, call it by name and welcome it in, Mm -hmm. invite it in. Don't try and kill it. Don't try to lock it in the basement. Don't try and deny it. All the, all the strategies and, and bring it in and be very kind to it and say, and basically say, I see you and I know how hurt you are. And then if I do that and I talk to it and, you know, ask it, what, what do you need? And what would you feel if you had what you need? Whatever that locked up stuff is with practice will eventually open up and kind of reveal where it's stuck and how how it needs my love, basically. It needs my care and my tending it in order to relax Mm -hmm. and in order to show me there's great wisdom in whatever it was doing, you know, like rage or grief or whatever the thing is, um, fear. It, it got put in place in order to protect me and save my life at some point. And now mm-hmm. it's taken over. So when I bring it in my arms like a child and kiss it on the forehead and say, what do you need? It often just was like, hold me and rock me and give me, give me a cookie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It would just be like, I just need to be seen and held mm-hmm. and brought back into the wholeness. And that practice has been powerful, powerful, powerful. And not only for my own healing, but for me to then, it spreads out because then I'm more able to see when when someone else is stuck in their depression or their anger or their grumpiness or their grief. I see it as, oh, now they're being visited by their grief or their Mm -hmm. child and and sometimes something as simple as saying wow i can see how hurt you are breaks the whole thing open Mm -hmm. like disarms the whole situation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very much like you were talking about early in our conversation when chris first died and you found suddenly found yourself belonging to this community that you didn't know existed yeah in this case, it's not necessarily a community of of widows. It's a community of people who are hurt. struggling with rage, hurt. Yeah, because really, it, rage is hurt. Yeah, something it, got hurt. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, one of the things I'm hearing is you're dis, you're describing you know your work with this practice and thinking about what we've been talking about. It it really sounds to me like, to some extent you are finding your life path, your spiritual path, your whatever we want to call it path through the the difficult. Absolutely. 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 Yes. And, you know, St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz, he, he, he was um, a big support to me in the very, very beginning because he's somebody who, was put through tremendous 
torture and cruelty by his fellow monks and and somehow came through it and just wrote his heart out to god as the lover as the beloved and to and to and to have a model of someone who's just been ripped up from the people that should have been supporting him mm-hmm. and to somehow have survived and come through radiant more radiant than he had been before was really um I don't know. That was a huge support to turn to him and the dark night of the soul is what Mm -hmm. he wrote. Yeah. And that, yeah, it helps to know others have been through much worse. Yes. To connect with that community. Here we are talking a third time about that, to connect with that community. Yeah. That is existent and waiting for us to recognize. Yeah. So, Jules, we're coming towards the end of our time here, and as we come to the end, there's this question I always ask, which is, you know, do you have any tips for listeners about how we might bring meditation and daily life closer together? And, you know, as we're on this threshold, what's coming up for me is a more specific iteration of this inquiry is, you know, do you have any tips for listeners, for anyone who might be curious about walking what a few moments ago we called the path of the difficult in our (laughs) lives. Any tips, pointers, or perspectives you can share from your place in this journey? You know, my, what I would say, what the, the hands down biggest thing that has been my guide is turning to my heart, my own heart, again and again and again, and asking, what, what is your heart of hearts wish, dear heart? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and don't worry. Try, try, try not to worry about what externally is being imposed. Because, you know, one of the things that I, I might intellect struggles with is all the people who will tell you you need to find one teacher and one path and one lineage and stick with that and otherwise you're playing the field or you're at the banquet table and you're not going deep Mm -hmm. and i worry there are times that i let that hurt and make me feel wrong but my heart of hearts has revealed again and again I don't know that if I trust it and I learn how to discern the difference between my true heart and the, the chatter (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the ego and all the other voices that might be in there, it will be trustworthy. It is utterly trustworthy. Mm. So that trust your heart of hearts and friends don't hurt. Good friends on the path are awesome. So, yeah, find, do what you can to find people who have, who support you and encourage mm-hmm. you, your your spiritual heart. Beautiful. Thank you very much. And thanks very much for being here, Jules. It's really been mm-hmm. a, privilege, a privilege and a pleasure. Thanks for letting me discover what the heck i had to say (laughs) (laughs) well may we all 
discover what the heck we have to say. I think it's um, an interesting time in the world. It's a challenging time in the world. And one of my uh, true beliefs and actually an inspiration behind these interviews is I think it's necessary that we discover what the heck we have to say. I do too. Because all of us have something utterly unique to share and offer and bring to the table. So, so thank you. And that the world needs. Yes. Yes. That only we as an individual, well, only we can provide that unique piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And it is a puzzle. We provide it as individuals and it comes together as a whole. So. A wonderful note to conclude on. Again, thanks very much for being here. And thanks to everyone who is listening. Uh, If you want, as always, to learn a little bit more about my work, helping bring meditation to life, please visit my website at neilmckinley.com. And if you're so inclined, consider signing up for my newsletter. It's a monthly source of teachings and updates and special offers. And it's a reminder when it shows up in the inbox that meditation just might have some role to play in our lives. In the meantime, take care and be well, and let's keep doing this work together. Let's keep bringing meditation to life.